Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast. As promised, there is a brand new release in the Christian Heritage series. G.K. Chesterton has officially joined the Canon Press team. Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton is available now in the Christian Heritage series. In this brilliant book, the enormously fat and jolly G.K. Chesterton gives a stirring defense of Christianity. Chesterton fought against the reductionist materialism with laughter, with joy, and gratitude for the beauty of the world God has given us. We usually think of orthodoxy and the tenets of the Christian faith as dry, arbitrary, and perhaps even nonsensical. Chesterton shows that orthodoxy is beautiful, and it fits this strange, quirky world perfectly. For those of us who do not pay any attention to the strangeness of the world, This book is essential reading. The world may not have fairies, but it does have the sun, rivers, trees, and the sky, and they are as strange as anything we will find in a fairy tale. Read this book, then go outside and marvel. So, welcome to the podcast. This is episode 149. 149. So, I want to talk about double standards. If, when you look at the left today, the progressive movement today, um, if they didn't have double standards, they'd have no standards at all. Um, and many times, conservatives think that this is simply a, um, they, they think they've, they've uh, addressed the problem by saying, oh, you're contra- what if George Bush had done that? What if what if Donald Trump did that? What if any given Republican did that? Well, uh, what we haven't come to grips with yet is we, are, we're not, we don't just have a collision of standards. We have a collision between one kind of standard and another kind of standard. For example, um, here's, here's why it looks like a double standard. It looks like a double standard. So uh, George Floyd was, uh, uh, died in the hands of the police when. Um, uh, Officer Chauvin was uh, kneeling on him, and George Floyd died. And Minneapolis went up in a sheet of flame, and then other other cities followed suit. And there was no reasoning with anybody, and they burned a bunch of uh, just untold damage. Right now, try to imagine something happening in racial terms. Let's let's say this uh, an encounter happened where a white citizen was shot by a black police officer. And let's say the same thing happened only in reverse, where the whites rioted. Now, someone's going to come bustle up and say, but there have been periods in history where the whites did riot. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. That's not my point here. Uh, people riot because they're sinners. They, they commit mayhem because they're sinners. And Asians are sinners, and whites are sinners, and blacks are sinners. Everybody's a sinner. But what would happen is if that happened and the whites rioted, the progressive left would say, that's not allowed. You you may not. They'd crack down on it. But they stand back and let this kind of rioting happen. Or this all happened at the tail end of the coronavirus scare. And so they're waving. You see pictures um, from big cities where massive 
Black Lives Matter protests are happening. And in that same city, if you tried to conduct a church service with over 50 people, uh, you're going to get a visit from the cops. The cops will police, you know, police the rule of how many people can be in a church service while thousands are crammed shoulder to shoulder in one of the squares downtown. So what's going on? Well, this is where we, we tend as conservatives to say, well, see, they've got double standards. No, they've got, they've got a consistent standard. And that standard is something that they insist on us obeying all the time. And that standard is they must be obeyed. That's the standard. They must be obeyed no matter what they say, no matter what they said 10 minutes before. So what they're maintaining is they want absolute, unquestioned, wholehearted obedience. They want us to collapse in front of them and do whatever it is they say to do. If they say, dig the hole, they want us to say, yes, sir. And if they say, then fill it up, what are you doing with that hole? They don't want any back chat from us. They want us to say, yes, sir, and they want us to fill the hole up. They have a consistent standard. We have a standard, and that is the law of our God must be obeyed. They have the same standard. The law of their God must be obeyed. Now, the difference has to do with the nature of the God, right? So the God that we say must be obeyed is the God who is holy and unchanging. So God is holy and immutable. He's holy and he does not change. Therefore, the law that is derived from his nature and character is a law that is holy and does not change. God's law doesn't change because he doesn't change. Man's law changes all the time because man changes all the time. So if man is God, man, well, if man is God, then the God is unholy, because man is unholy, and entirely mutable, changes all the time. And so we must expect the law that is based on the character of the God to be unholy and to change all the time. But the thing that's constant as we, as we compare our standard to their standard the thing that is constant is this. The God of the system requires obedience. The God of the system requires obedience. It does no good to point out to them that their God is inconsistent because they can say he gets to do that. He's God. You know, Demos is the people or whatever's done in the name of the people, and they will say, that's just the way it is. You have to obey. You have to obey the God of the system. So. Uh, this is a choice between the rule of law on the one hand and the law of rule on the other. The rule of law on the one hand and the law of rule. We can have the rule of law because the God on whom the law is based is immutable. And that means that if it's, going to, if it's sinful to murder someone for their money in 500 BC, it's going to be sinful to do the same thing 500 AD. If it's sinful to get an abortion on Monday, it's going to be sinful to get an abortion on Friday. But if you, go, if you turn to the God of the progressive left and say, is this a sin? They're going to say, it depends. All right? The law is what we say it is. And we reserve the right to punish you for doing what we commanded you to do yesterday. We reserve the right to punish you for doing what we commanded you to do yesterday. Why? 
because we're God. So, don't draw the comparison. Don't say uh, they have double standards. They have the same standard we do. God must be obeyed. Uh, the, the problem is that they have a corrupt God. The problem is that they have a deceitful God. They have a fallen God. They have a wicked God. Always we will be God. Podcast episode 149. We come now to our, our happy little hamartiology section. Our hamartiological word this time is aphelagathos. Aphelagathos. Now, agathos is the word for good, from which we get the name agatha. Uh, this is a compound word, and the syllable phil refers to a lover, in this case, a lover of what is good. But then we come to the prefix a, which in Greek is a term of negation. A theist believes in God, and an atheist does not. A Gnostic claims knowledge. An agnostic claims that he does not know, and so on. So, in, uh, in Greek or in words that come from the Greek, an A at the beginning, an A as a prefix, is, is frequently a term of negation. So, putting all this together, this compound word refers to someone who does not love those who are good or does not love what is good. Aphilagathos. Um, so, agathos. Feel, feel, and ah. We find it used one time in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy. For men shall be lovers of them, their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. There we go, that's it. Traitors, heady, high minded, Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. That's 2 Timothy 3, 2-5. Now, as is customary in Scripture, we find sin described in bunches and clusters. And with regard to this sin, it makes complete sense. For those who despise what is good, there's an awful lot of good out there to despise. Consider some of the things that are mentioned in this list. Holiness is good, and they despise it. That's why they're unholy. Gratitude is good, and they despise it. That's why they're unthankful. Loyalty is good, and they despise it. That's why they're traitors, and so on. It's not at all surprising that Paul says, from such, turn away. So, continuing on with podcast episode 149, here's our book review section. So, a few episodes back, I reviewed a book called American Nations, which a friend and colleague recommended to me, and that was the book that talked about the 11 cultural nations that that filled up North America, going from El Norte and northern Mexico and the the southwest of the U.S. up to um, First Nations up in Canada and New France and Quebec and also New Orleans and um, basically 11... Eleven Nations. It was quite a good book. I enjoyed it very much, and um, and then I've had di- I had different people tell me a- after that that I really ought to read this other book, which I'm going to commend to you now, called Albion's Seed. Albion's Seed. Now this is much more limited. Instead of uh, uh, the the fellow who wrote American Nations was basically looking at uh, North American continent and trying to identify the different cultural ethnic tribes 
that existed on that continent, right? So he was going from the continent and dividing it up and then trying to figure out where they came from. Uh, this book, Albion Seed, is doing something a little bit different. What he is doing is he is starting from England or starting from Great Britain and tracing four, um, four cultural groups that took root here in America. And he, so, he's, so what he does doesn't cover the whole North American uh, continent, but it accounts for a great deal of our history. And all four of these come from uh, England or, or Great Britain. So in uh, uh, in the earlier book, American Nations, there's uh, the, there are Spanish influences and French influences. This is just limited to Albion's seed. Um, these um, these groups that are uh, from England, and the four the four groups are um, are the settlers of Puritan New England, and the thing that he shows is that these four. Uh, distinct cultural regions in the United States were settled by people from particular cultural regions in England. In other words, uh, it wasn't like all the Englishmen sort of formed up uh, on the docks and then got on different ships in alphabetical order according to the last name and then went to different colonies. What happened was uh, there were there was a distinct migration from one part of England to one part of America, and then from another part of England to another part of America. So what Fisher shows is that uh, many of the customs that we come to associate with a particular regional American practice were actually practices that are, were centuries old and uh, existed um, in, back in England, back in the home country. So here, uh, that said, in East Anglia, East Anglia, was the sort of the mother load, the source of uh, uh, Puritan New England. So the Puritan New Englanders were overwhelmingly from uh, East Anglia. Then uh, the Tidewater uh, gentry, um, Tidewater is, uh, if you look at the Chesapeake Bay, which is where I grew up, I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland. The bay is right there. It is... um, uh, it's called tidewater because there's, well, there's like around six thousand miles of uh, tidewater coastline up and down the bay. So it there's all sorts of inlets and rivers and you know, everything. So um, tidewater, Maryland and Virginia, was settled by Cavaliers from Southern England. Okay, so these people were largely Tories. So if you, um, if you know English history at all, you know that Cambridge was a hotbed of Puritanism, uh, and Cambridge is uh, on nor- northeast of London. Uh, so you have a, a region that is dominated by Puritans. Then you had a region that was dominated by Tories, supporters of the king, royalists, cavaliers. That, that is where uh, the settlers in Virginia and Maryland, the Tidewater area, came from. Um, then you had, uh, and all of these migrations, incidentally, were in the 16 and 17. So I'm just going to ballpark it here. Let's say 1650 to 1750. So the, those 100 years. And there were different pockets of uh, waves of migration during this time. 
But in the Midlands, in the north, in England, um, the Quakers came. So the Quakers settled in the Delaware Valley. Uh, so parts of New Jersey, uh, Delaware, and then Pennsylvania was where the uh, William Penn uh, established his um, his colony. So Quakers settled in the Delaware Valley in that that area, and they overwhelmingly came from the Midlands, uh, the North Midlands in England, and then. Uh, the fourth group that he covers resulted in what might be called Greater Appalachia. Um, this is where the rednecks or the crackers um, come from, the Scots, uh, the Scots, the Scots-Irish. And, and basically, if you get out a map and look at the Irish, the Irish Sea, the borderlands of, the borderlands of England and Scotland um, Although the, they were fiercely hostile to one another and, the, and with the wars and fighting across the border, they were very culturally similar. So hard scrabble England up in the borderlands, uh, the lowland Scots, and then the Scots-Irish in Ireland. So the Scots-Irish in Ireland, the lowland Scots, and then the Englishmen in the northern counties. These people came over in uh, in a torrent, and they settled in the back country. So, um, so there were different attempts. To, you know, let's get the rednecks to move west so they can be a buffer between us and the Indians. So, uh, Greater Appalachia extends from uh, well, parts of Pennsylvania, Western Maryland, down through down through Kentucky and Tennessee, and uh, that's we're talking uh, Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett. Um, uh, type people. Uh, Andrew Jackson came out of this, uh, this group. So you have um, four distinct regional cultures in America that dominated American development, growth, and, well, quite striking. Yankee New England was East Anglian, uh, Tidewater, Virginia, and parts of Maryland uh, Virginia, uh, up to the war between the states, dominated national affairs. You know, just think of how many, how many of our early presidents were Virginians, you know, Madison and Washington and you know, uh, Jefferson. So the, Virginia was um, a dominant force. Then you had um, the Quakers who contributed a, a lot of our customs um, and our sort of commitment to pluralism and things like that. Uh, with a, for the Quakers, that commitment to pluralism wasn't an absolutist, secular pluralism, but rather um, this is what God wants us to do, sort of pluralism. Um, uh, so the Quakers were doing their thing. And then you had uh, the whiskey-drinking uh, Celtic warrior type out in the outback. Anyway, uh, this, is a, this is a pretty, pretty uh, big book. And I've been working at it, away at it for a while and am um, almost done. But I have to say, I've not enjoyed a book of history uh, quite so much in a long time. Uh, this is one of those books that has a, a great deal of explanatory power. You're reading history from two and three centuries back, and, and the book is explaining the things that you're watching on the evening news tonight. So. Albion's Seed by Fisher.
sky.